I took a, uh, a counseling class in uh, seminary, and the goal of the class was to teach us how to resolve a person's problem in six weeks. And if we... <laughs> And if you couldn't do it in six weeks, you were to refer to a professional. Um, and I remember thinking, cool, I can do that. Uh, of course, I was 23. Um, lately, I'm not sure if I've changed. I'm not sure if the culture's changed. I'm not sure if you've changed. But I'm... I'm finding less people wanting to come in and talk about problems that you can solve in six weeks. Um, I mean, there are some. But I, I find myself having conversations more about problems that don't seem like you can solve them. Uh, and again, this maybe more a function of age, um, whether they're personal problems, my mother has Alzheimer's, I have cancer, I'm going through a divorce, or more existential, broader problems, something just feels wrong, I'm troubled by where we are, I feel afraid. What do we do? You know, I was, I was thinking uh, about my training in preaching, and one of the things that I was always trained to do in my, it's called homiletics, in my homiletics classes was make sure by the end of the sermon you've solved their problem. Um, so you begin with a felt need, and then you move towards solving the need, right? That's, that's a good way to, to communicate. And, and I hope sometimes you've come out of here with something resembling something helpful. <laughs> but again, I'm increasingly reading parts of Scripture that seem to be going somewhere else. Um, seem to be wanting something more than solving my problem, solving your problem. So we're starting Lent tonight. I know it's confusing because it's 70 degrees out. Um, and about, I don't know, long, many months ago, I had a dream. I was praying about the dream. And the dream had something to do with that passage in Luke where the disciples meet Jesus and they leave and they have a burning heart. That's such a wonderful passage, you know, where you have a heart that's on fire for Christ. And I began to pray, Lord, as Lynn is coming, what can we do that will move us towards a burning heart, move us towards something shifting in our heart, something awakening in our heart, renewal, refreshing, revival, whatever you want to call that. And, and I, was, I was thinking maybe we'd study some texts in the Holy Spirit or revival or something like that. And what I continued to hear is um, the book of Lamentations. And more than once I've said to God, have you read the book of Lamentations? <laughs> Certainly you don't want us to study the book of Lamentations. But, and I, I could be wrong, 
but what I keep getting back is, trust me on this. Um, trust me on this. So that is what we're going to do uh, during Lent. We're going to study the book of Lamentations. The five chapters are five poems, five laments, five funeral dirges that uh, Jeremiah writes after the fall of Jerusalem in 567 B.C., and we're going to take one each week um, and, and look at it. Now, a couple of things about lament. Biblical lament always moves towards hope. It's grief. It's protest. It's hard questions. It always moves towards hope. Another thing that we find when we study lament in the Bible is that it's all over the place. 65 of the 150 psalms are lament psalms. There are more lament psalms than any other kind of psalm. If you, however, study American hymnals, I read a research project. I read boring stuff. I read this research project on American hymnody, and they found out that about 3% are about lament (laughs) because we we don't like it. I mean, I didn't like Trevetta's prayer, did you? <laughs> you know, that's messy, it's hard, it's awkward. It's ugh, rough stuff. But it's all over the Bible. And it opens us up to things that maybe we're supposed to be opened up to. I'm not sure you're supposed to like it. But it's in the Word, and it's an important part of our spiritual heritage. These are also poems. Um, The first four are written in an acrostic. And the acrostic means, like our old ABC game, you take every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each letter begins uh, a part of the poem. And some people think the reason why Jeremiah wrote in an acrostic after this great disaster when Jerusalem was destroyed was because when you're in so much pain that you can't focus, sometimes it's helpful to have an order or a sequence to just hold on to because these poems would have been said and prayed like liturgy over and over again among the exiles after the disaster. But it's also interesting that when you get to the fifth poem, the acrostic blows up, the structure of the poem blows up, and it's just this dogfight with God. (laughs) And it doesn't resolve very well. And it's almost as if the person was just trying to contain their grief and work through their grief, and at moments they move towards hope, and then it all just kind of falls apart. And on the one hand, that's disappointing, because it would be a much better sermon series (laughs) if it just kind of slowly moved towards a climax of trust and hope and sweetness, and we can find some psalms like that. But this one actually builds to chapter 3, get a little bit of hope in there, and it's all downhill after that. And I think why it's still in the Bible, because remember, somebody under the Spirit of God decided what went in and what went out, right? And so the people of God decided this one went in. Why? Why? Because grief's like that. You know, I, I appreciate all this talk about the five stages of grief. And I guess there's some help in it. But I just don't see people going through stages of grief. 
as if you kind of check, you know, anger, check, denial, check. Okay, here we go into acceptance, check, bargaining. I don't see people grieving that way. I see them doing this. It's raw, it's ugly, it's messy. There are moments when you grab onto God, then you have a holiday or a memory or a card comes in the mail and you're back in the pits again. So this is a messy book, but isn't, isn't life kind of like that? The other thing that's kind of confusing about this poetry is there's all these different voices in dialogue with each other. It's not just Jeremiah. He's writing the poem, and he's got all these different sort of people talking. And they're kind of arguing with each other about what God is doing. And that's kind of unsettling. But again, maybe that's how we go through grief. Maybe it's not linear and rational and orthodox. Maybe it's like a lot of people in your head arguing about it or in your community arguing about it. So we'll begin tonight with the first poem that starts, How lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. It was common in the ancient uh, world to identify a destroyed city as a widow because a widow was a symbol of vulnerability and need and, and tragedy because they had no resources. And, and, and this particular city once was a princess and now was a slave. I mean, it's the ultimate picture of the loss of status, the loss of hope, the loss of of everything you thought life was supposed to be like. This, this, is, this is a story that has gotten totally flipped on its head. Everything the people of God thought God was going to do, everything they thought about how life was supposed to go has just got flipped. Oh, that's hard. Is that maybe where you're living tonight? I mean, maybe you kind of knew the way it was supposed to go. And it's all flipped. So you're angry, you're frustrated, you're discouraged, you're wondering, God, where are you? Maybe you're looking out at the world around you and you're wondering, what? this isn't the way it's supposed to go. That's what's happening here. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. And all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They become her enemies. Jeremiah is probably writing this. And remember, Jeremiah lived among the exiles. And he lived among the people of Jerusalem before this horrible siege that took place for two years. You can read about it in 2 Kings 25. Nebuchadnezzar's armies came in, they put armies around, they made it impossible to escape, they tried to starve the city out, people literally started to eat each other, they turned on each other, then the armies raided, tore up the temple, tore up the walls, took out the eyes of the king, dragged all the people into captivity into Egypt. It was, it was Aleppo, it was, it was just it was, it was horrible, it was horrible. 
And all along, Jeremiah had been warning them. And one of the things that he'd been saying was, look, look, stop trying to make Israel uh, allies with all your neighbors, Israel. You think that Moab and Gad and Syria, and you think they're going to save you. They're not going to save you. Trust in God alone. But they ignored and they kept making allies with their neighbors. They put their trust in neighbors. And what he's saying now is they weren't there for you when you needed them. You're putting your trust in the wrong place. And God's let you reap what you were sowing. I think this is one of Israel's most common spiritual problems. It's one of our most common spiritual problems, this lack of trust. We have this prayer time on Wednesday mornings at 8.30, if any of you ever are free to make it. And for many years, we've used that time to primarily pray for the sermon, just ask that God would guide and be here. And lately, we've decided to change it up a little bit, and uh, Gary Peacock and Taryn McLean, two members of our congregation, have been leading it and teaching us a, a way of praying that helps us discern collaboratively what God is doing. And it consists of three prayers. The first is a prayer of trust, where you say, God, I, I really trust you. The second is a prayer of uh, indifference, which means, God, I'm laying down my agenda for this meeting in this church. And the third is a prayer for wisdom. The idea being you work through those first two stages, you're in a great posture to hear God. And so we invited them in to do this. And, and, and I remember thinking, this could be a little boring. I mean, you know, the trust thing, we've kind of got that. The indifference thing, we've kind of got that. And let's get to the wisdom part because that's what we need. And so we've got an hour and a half, right? And so they start off and we say, okay, let's just pray for trust. And I'm ready. To, I think we can get this done in three minutes because I need a lot of wisdom. Let's get there. And, and then Taryn reads Psalm 131, which is that beautiful psalm about the nursing mother, or the nursing child. Uh, oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord this time forth and forevermore. So you start with this beautiful picture of trust. And so this week I went over to Kyle and Katie Howe. They just had a lovely baby boy, Elliot. And we, we took him a little book from the church and just wanted to pray for him. Welcome to the world. And he had nursed and he was just resting there on, on her shoulder. And it just occurred to me, that's a picture of what trust looks like. I'm a long way away from that. Now, there were a few times when he, when he picked up his phone and checked it. Um, no, he didn't do that. <laughs> I'm not worried about his phone. His mama's got him. Just resting. Just resting. So when Israel doesn't trust... She gets into trouble, and the same with us. Lynn is a good time to kind of take a trust test. What are some of the false gods you're trusting in? 
Some of them are kind of small, might be, you know, food or alcohol or a codependent relationship or noise or something like that. But, but some of these false gods for us are, are bigger. Uh, it could be our theology. It could be my political beliefs. It could be uh, my way of life. What are the gods you're looking to to make you safe and happy? You know, I want to be real careful here. There's a lot of anxiety in the world right now, at least in the little corner of the world that I'm in. A lot of fear. A lot of fear. And there's a lot of things going on. Fear's a reasonable emotion. But I guess what I want us to ask this Lent, if I'm struggling with anxiety, Has my trust shifted to a false god? If I'm struggling with anxiety, how's my trust? I'm not, I'm not trying to be naive. I'm not trying to say, hey, just trust Jesus. It'll all be okay. I, I get the reality. There are real issues. We're all struggling. I get, I get all that. But still... Who are you trusting to keep you safe and happy? Then the poet says, The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. That's just such a terrible picture. If you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem or You've envisioned it at all. Jerusalem was, of course, the site of the temple. There would be three great feasts every year. Thousands of pilgrims would throng from everywhere to come in and worship. They'd be singing praises all the way up the trail. Uh, the, the sounds of, uh, of the hymns would be going on through the night. The smell of the aroma, the incense. Israel was a worshiping community. Now it's all stopped. There's nobody left to worship. The few priests that are are starving to death. And Jeremiah is just lamenting the loss of worship. It's one of the consequences of, of this discipline that they're experiencing. And, you know, one of the things that I, I thought when I was thinking about that this week is I wonder if there's a metaphor there. I, I wonder if. Because remember, this is a result of Israel turning from God. I wonder if deadened worship, uh, the collapse of worship, the lack of interest in corporate worship, I'm not talking about Bethel on Pandora. I'm talking about coming together with the people of God to worship him. When that starts to collapse, Could it be discipline for sin? You know, normally where we go is, well, you know, we need more drums, or no, we, we need new kinds of songs, or you know, that, that kind of thing. And those aren't bad questions. But what I'm wondering is, when the people of God cease to worship, cease to desire to worship, is that something to mourn? 
Is that something that might be a cue that we should go back to God and repent? Now, a few verses later, the narrator says this, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. And all through the book of Lamentations, there are numerous statements like this that present a theology of suffering that goes like this. We made a covenant with God, we broke that covenant, and God is punishing us. That's all through the book of Lamentations. It's called the Theology of Retribution. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. It's found in all the prophets and in many books in between. And Lamentations is just saturated in a theology of suffering that says we are suffering because we have sinned. And you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you see it all clearly laid out. God says to Israel, you're my people. If you obey me, I will bless you materially and spiritually in every other way. If you disobey me, I'll curse you materially and spiritually in every other way. It's all laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you're a, a, let me say it differently. One of the things that we wrestle with as Christians thinking about a text like this from the New Covenant is, well, Jesus seemed to overturn that whole theology of suffering. When Jesus walks by a blind man and the the rabbis say, who sinned, the man or his father? Jesus says, neither. It's all for the glory of God. And then Paul says that Jesus bore the wrath of God himself so that the anger of God has already been poured out on his son. Yes, there's discipline of a loving father, but we don't experience his wrath. So what do we do with a theology of suffering like this? How does it apply to us? What do you do with that? You certainly can't just draw a straight line. Well, this is not the series to work out a theology of suffering. However, I I, I think at the very least, we could say this is true in both covenants. God is a loving Father wants us to follow him and obey him. And as a loving father, when we choose to rebel against his will and live against the grain of his desires, there will be consequences, just as there are in my family and your family when a child disobeys. So I don't think we want to just put all of Lamentations in the Old Covenant box. Much of it needs to stay there. But there is a truth in both covenants that if the people of God grieve God and rebel against him, there are consequences that are designed to bring the people of God back. Now, here's what I would like to focus on tonight. The poet is confessing corporate sin. He's speaking on behalf of all of Israel when he says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. 
And in this poem, he'll repeat that again and again and again. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Now, normally in Lent, what we focus on is individual sin. And we will talk about that this Lent. Lent is a time of cleansing our winter gardens, preparing for spring. It's a time to look at our hearts. It's time to look at our relationship with God. That's a very important part of Lent. But what Lamentations invites us into is confession over corporate sin. And I think this is rarer and perhaps new for many of us. It's more new for me. It, it is the idea that we as the people of God have done something wrong. That we as the whole community of God here and all over for all time have grieved God. And for this we are asking forgiveness. And one of the things that I hope happens during Lent is that God may start to put on our hearts areas of corporate sin that we might ask forgiveness for. Now, what he puts on your heart might be different than what he puts on my heart. I don't expect we're all going to repent over the same thing. But I do think there is a place that leads to renewal when the people of God start asking the questions, where have we as an entire people grieved God? And then we repent of those things. Now, let me give you just, just an illustration. Um, last fall, I, I, I went to this little conference that the campus ministries put on. I think I mentioned it to you here. It was about the church and racism. And the speaker came in, all the campus ministries were together, and uh, he was a very powerful speaker. Um, I, I found that I didn't necessarily agree with everything he said. I didn't necessarily agree with every scripture he used or even the way he read history. However, over the course of the night, he gave numerous examples about how the church had participated in racism over the past 400 years. Capital C Church. And so I'm thinking, okay, what are we going to do about this? What are you going to ask us to do? Because that's where I get stuck, given. I don't know what to do. At the end of the night, he says, I think the church needs to participate in a prolonged season of lament. A prolonged season of lament. What I'm inviting you into over Lent is for you to open your heart and let God break it. For your own personal sins, but also for sins that the church has shared in. Ways the church has not been the church. That's part, I think, 
of the message of Lamentations. Now, we'll end real quickly with the second part of the poem. The first 11 verses have a cold and detached narrator speaking. It's almost like he's a reporter doing a documentary. He's saying, this is what's happened to Israel. This is why it happened. And then in verse 12, the narration changes, and the daughter of Zion bursts in, kind of like pushes the guy off the stage, and and she personifies Jerusalem. She is a grieving widow, and now this is a woman's voice who is very upset, and all, all the detachment is gone, and she is raw grieving. She says in verse 12, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the fierce day of his anger. Isn't that that one of the horrible things about grief? When you are really suffering, you're in the hospital bed, you've just said goodbye to your dad, whatever it is, and you just look by at everybody else going on with their life. And you think, don't, don't you understand my world just collapsed? Do you have any idea what I'm going through here? And in the poem, nobody answers her. She's very isolated. She's very, very alone. She even cries out to God, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. This is one of the really hard things about the book of Lamentations. God never speaks. Oh, boy. But isn't that what it's like sometimes when you grieve? Isn't that what makes grief so unbearably hard sometimes? Is that you cry out and you cry out and God doesn't answer. That's what's happening here. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. She just feels isolated, cut off, and alone. And again, you're hoping that by the end of the poem... There's this but God, there's this yet God, there's this I will trust you, and she just never can get there. As best as she can do is this bitter prayer, God, as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, deal with them. It's about as far as she can get. Well, poems are not instruction manuals, um, Poems are raw fury. Their life, their power, their angst, their terror. And a biblical poem is terror that's trying to find its way to God. Now in the middle of the book, chapter 3, For a couple of verses, we get this. But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good. 
And then she slips back down the hill. And I think I want to point that out to us tonight, and maybe this is a good place to end, is, is if you are mourning tonight, if you are grieving tonight, whether it's a personal issue that's breaking your heart, whether it's a dream that's died, whether it's something going on in our society that crushes your spirit, if that is where you are tonight... Don't condemn yourself if you can't crawl out too easily. This book is in the Bible to show us how hard it is to work through grief towards God. And as Barbara Brown Taylor said so powerfully, some people can't ever do it. So don't judge yourselves by the five stages of grief as if the human heart was like a flow chart. Judge yourself by the book of Lamentations. Speak your fear. Share your anger. And move towards God.